listening to Destination Country X, a KPMG tax radio podcast series. We cover key U.S. and foreign tax and trade developments that affect cross-border investment. I'm your host, Kim Major, a principal with Washington National Tax and leader of the firm's inbound tax practice. We're glad to have you join us. Enjoy the program. While we often talk about direct and indirect tax rules that affect cross-border investment, Every now and then, there's a non-tax development that changes the way cross-border business is structured and possibly taxed. Today's episode focuses on Mexican labor developments that target Mexican intercompany services companies and compensation paid by those companies to their employees. Joining me are my co-host, Courtney Wallace, an international tax principal from KPMG's Detroit office. Armando Lara, Head of International Tax for KPMG Mexico, and Marcela Calderon, a partner from KPMG Mexico's Labor and Employment Group. Thank you, Kim. I think it's really important for companies to understand this issue. Intercompany services companies are really common structures, and we see them a lot in the Mexican manufacturing space. And if there's a chance that they really need to be modified, I think companies need to get ahead of it as soon as possible. I completely agree. Anytime you make any kind of organic change, it's not cheap, it's not easy, and it's not quick. Armando, welcome back to the program. Could you please set the scene for us? Hi, Kim, and thank you so much for the invitation. Well, it's very common to see the structure in which you can have a manufacturing company that is the operating company, but the personnel is located in a different legal entity that is personal service company, which will provide all of the personnel that the manufacturing company needs. And for that reason, the personal company will receive a compensation for that service as a cost plus six, five, depending of the, of, of the nature of the services that has to be provided. The generation of income of the personal services is not so high. The profit sharing to be distributed to the employees will be not a very high cost for the group. Okay. Marcelo, why does the government have a problem with this? Hi, Kim. Under this scenario of the profit sharing, some companies use the service company as a mechanism that does not recognize the employment relationship or maybe decrease the employee costs or avoid some social security taxes. So, well, this is uh, the common practice to use the services company. However, in this moment, we have a proposal that was submitted by the president and consider that this kind of services are not allowed. So we need to move to another kind of structure, the subcontracting regime or the employment relationship under a subcontracting regime is prohibited. So this is the first fact that we need to consider. And then some services are allowed. However, this kind of services has some requirements, like the services cannot be identified with the business purpose or the, the economic activity of the company. We have to analyze how is the situation of the company, but in general terms, they need to move the employees. Okay, if I could just restate, just so that I'm absolutely clear, there's a requirement to take 10% of operating profit and to distribute amongst the employees of the operating company. 
by removing the employees from the operating company and putting them in their own intercompany services entity, they're stuck with cost plus six. A limited return to the company means a limited return to the employees in terms of their profit share. So if you're going to eliminate the intercompany services company, the employees have to be recombined or taken back into the operating company structures. Yes. As we think about this, maybe from a U.S. multinational perspective or a foreign multinational outside of Mexico, what if the profits or the principal amounts were otherwise captured outside of Mexico in a foreign entity? Would these rules be applicable for them as well? These rules only apply for the company that is the employer in Mexico, in the in Mexican territory. If the profit goes to a foreign company, well, it does not apply because it's not the employer in Mexican territory. Got it. And is there any restriction on the type of business or type of operating entities that get pulled into this from an employee perspective? In this moment, it does not exist some rule that identify this kind of operation. And general rule in this moment only applies for the company that it's located in, in Mexico for employment purposes. And there is one thing that is very important to mention. The government is one of the key actors in order to hire outsourcing services in many ways. For example, in the Mexico City Airport, is outsource all of the security services. And in many areas of the government, it's exactly the same phenomenon. I mean, I guess Marcella was not kidding when she said that no special industries get accepted. Are there any size limitations? Or does it apply to all companies, no matter how big or small? All the companies. Also, if the employer is an individual, this individual has to share the profit. Armando, are there transition costs that you see in getting those employees back together in with the operating company? Yeah, you have two options to liquidate the company and transfer the contracts before you liquidate the company to the operating company. This is the first calculation that you need to analyze. The other way is if I merge two companies. So if we can have a taxable event here or not, we need to revise case-by-case case basis because the merger in some cases in Mexico is not a taxable event to the extent that the company that is surviving still carry out the activities by the company that has been eliminated. So this is one of the things that we need to analyze. But anyway, in any scenario, we need to see if we need to have all of this personnel or not and take into consideration that, what would be the proper step in order to move forward the structure in order to comply. So, Armando, is there an exit tax as we think about changes potentially to the supply chain and moving functions outside of Mexico? In terms of transfer pricing, it, it is possible to consider that the tax authorities will ask for that, for an exit tax or an equivalent of an exit tax. Of course, there is one provision in the Mexican law that says when you are moving the tax residence of a Mexican company in accordance to the law or the treaty, this triggers an exit tax as well. The past years, the tax authorities have been very aggressive, saying if you are moving outside the business, it's because you are selling it. So what is the price that has to be paid for for this movement, etc.? So this is one of the things that we need to analyze and see how we can come up with some solutions that can be practical for the client. To put outside all of the manufacturing activities, of course, this implies another cost depending on who is the owner of the assets, 
what will be your market. There are some specific costs that you have to take into consideration. We need to take into consideration that Mexico has the free trade agreement for Europe, Japan, etc. Free trade agreements that normally the U.S. is not covering. Probably if you move on in other parts of the world, this is one of the things that you have to take into consideration in order to see what is the most convenient movement in that respect. It struck me as we talk about manufacturing entities, the scenarios seem somewhat clear and the abuses, potential abuses and what they're after. But there's all other kinds of businesses where this seems somewhat against policy, where if I have a high value IP business or something like that, it doesn't that encourage me to keep those profits out of Mexico instead of within Mexico? Kim, it seems like there's an awful lot to think about as folks are setting up their supply chain relative to Mexico. I think that's right. I would be looking at the potential costs of complying with the new rules and the transition costs into getting into a compliant structure versus possibly exporting my risks and assets out to a non-Mexican entity. So I could see maybe a U.S. or a Dutch or a Hungarian principal, something like that. Or maybe you end up restructuring your supply chain in a way that you kind of transfer price so that even if you kept your full risk manufacturing in Mexico, you reduce the level of profits that are declared in Mexico. No matter what, it sounds really expensive, but I think those are your options. Is there anything else that we should be thinking about with regard maybe to the Maquila structure? It seems like the Maquila structure already anticipates this kind of 6% return. Well, definitely what we need to say that it depends on the way that you are calculating your taxation. Because if you remember, in order to have the Maquila regime, you have to calculate you have the 6.5 or your cost or 6.9 of, of the value of your assets. Take into consideration that they, if you are increasing the personnel that works in the maquila, probably the result will be higher if you are putting all of the personnel at the level of the manufacturing company. So in that respect, we need to see what will be the result. Let's see that you have the paradigm that was set up by the law. And the employees don't like the amount of profit sharing that they've been given. What options do they have at that point? Do they have any recourse? Can they challenge? The law establishes a specific procedure between the moment that the company submit the tax return in March of each year and May of the same year, the moment that the company has to pay to the employee the profit sharing. The company has to share the information with the representatives of the employees. The union leaders can point out the precedents or the facts that they are considered that the company has to include in the tax return. They can make some observation related with the information that it is included in the tax return. The law establish a specific procedure that they maybe go before the tax administration service and they let them know that exists some issues that the company is not considering with a purpose to determine the income tax. In this case, the tax authority begins the review in a short procedure in order to identify if the observations of the union are correct. 
if in this procedure the tax authority agree with the reasons of the union or the employees, well, they need to make an additional payment of profit sharing considering this difference in the taxable income. Wait, this is amazing to me. If I heard that correctly, the labor union can call for an audit of the tax return of the employer. The audit is done by the SAT, who would ordinarily conduct audits, and the SAT then, if they don't agree with the amount of income, can make a proposed adjustment. I would assume, and Armando, you tell me, but I would assume that this binding with respect to the amount of income that is declared for all purposes, including the normal tax return purposes, for that employer for that year. Is that is that right? That's correct, Kim, because at the end, this is the result of an, uh, an audit where the tax administration service has certain observations on the tax file return filed by the company, and this is applicable for profit sharing and also for purposes of any tax. And how long does this audit take? No more than six months. If you could ballpark for us, how long does an audit normally take? A normal audit probably can take at least one year and a half, two years. And sometimes, for example, in transfer pricing, you can reach sometimes three years, for four years. So if you compare those times with the profit sharing situation, you will see that it's a very short procedure that we have in front of us for purposes to determine if the calculation has been good or not by the company. I think if I were looking at the norm of potentially several years that then got abbreviated into a six-month process, that might scare me a little bit because I'm not sure I would bet on coming through that process better off (laughs) for it being only six months than if it had been the lengthier one where I had a little bit more time to gather my arguments, gather the facts, etc. Thinking about it, I guess I understand because if you took the, the employees, you put them in their own legal entity that was only compensated at cost plus, call it six, it doesn't matter that you go to the SAT. The SAT is only going to be looking at a tax return that has a top line revenue of cost plus six. How much could it possibly go up? It's not gonna. You can't insert phantom income onto the tax return of the services company. So what are the potential penalties for non-compliance? The consequences that is considering this proposal are strong. The first penalty that we need to consider is unemployment penalties. The maximum could be $192,000 per employee. And, well, for tax purposes, well, also is considering these kind of services are not deductible. And if the services are specialized services and we can provide intercompany services in another entity, if the employees in the past were employees of the operative company, the amount or the payment of these services also cannot be deductible. So this is the consequences that this initiative proposes. So Marcella, what is the intended timing of these proposals? This initiative has to be analyzed by the Congress, the deputies and the senators. If it happens in this period of time, before December 15, maybe it's probable that on January 1st, it will be effective. If the proposal is adopted 
And so that, say, January 1st, it goes into effect. The company doesn't declare its income for the inspection of the employee representatives until sometime after January 1st. Does that mean that the company has that period of time to restructure itself? Or is the expectation that if the rule goes into effect on January 1st, January 1st is the day where they need to have been restructured? We have two effects. One is the impact of the profit sharing. If we make some change during 2021, well, maybe it impact for profit sharing purposes on the next year. But the company has to resolve this situation because the main effect is that the payments that the company made since January 1st will be not deductible if the company does not comply with the requirements to be considered. Oh, okay. So if I understood that correctly, the profits are going to be taken into account for the whole of 2021, assuming a January 1st adoption date. So there's no magic to when you do it for that purpose. The deduction disallowance could take effect from 1-1 to whenever the date is that you remediate. And so if you remediate immediately, maybe there's no material deduction disallowance. If you wait until November, you still get the whole year for profit sharing purposes, except that there is actually going to be a deduction disallowance to November, which is going to have the dynamic effect of increasing the enterprise profits, and that is going to inure to the benefit of the employees. So there's a cascading effect to the profits that is based on the deduction disallowance period. Did I get that right? I consider that it's correct. (laughs) (laughs) So it's good to give the heads up to the companies that have this structure because it's going to take some time. You have to run the scenarios. You've got to model out your options, figure out what is the least expensive option to pursue, how much gets you the least ongoing risk of adjustment, and then you have to do it. And if you start that process right now, maybe you have a hope of settling on a plan by the time the new laws are adopted. But that's possibly a push because we have holidays between now and whenever that is. I'm not sure if you even have enough time, but whatever it is, you need to start in on it. I think it's the underlying message. Absolutely, because especially if you think about transfer pricing and functional analysis and appropriate interviews and what gets left and what isn't and to get to our appropriate profit. I think there's a lot of analysis that needs to happen and getting to the people in order to do that is going to be a challenge, like you said, with the holidays upon us. So thanks so much to both of you for talking us through these issues. It sounds like the U.S. principal structure may be safe, but the Mexican full risk structure is a problem. Please keep us posted because I do think these are very common for U.S. companies and potential penalties as well as potential reputational risks for non-compliance cannot and should not be ignored. In the meantime, everyone, thanks so much for joining us. Stay well. We'll speak again soon. You've been listening to Destination Country X. Thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to speaking to you next time. Thank you.